Welcome back, team, to another episode of The Few. Remember, if this is the second, third, fourth, or maybe you've listened to all the podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a review and to also subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. The more comments we have, the more reviews, the more subscribers, the better the guests. And we've been doing a pretty damn good job because we've got a pretty damn awesome guest on the show today. We would have to say in life, one of the biggest challenges is maintaining our health. We possibly saw the biggest health scare in modern history when it came to COVID. We increased our awareness and it was very much something that was external to us that we couldn't control and it defined our life for many years. What about health where we can define it and we're in control? And clearly an area of that is around our weight, our exercise, whether or not we're creating an environment where our body is truly a temple. Today's guest has had a challenge with this and went from a period of life where potentially health wasn't top priority and where obesity was a factor and still today obesity is a huge factor across the developed world yet how is it so with modern technology with the abundance of food what is it that prohibits us or stops us from living the same life as the few which is to have a healthy mind body and soul please make him welcome team welcome to the few podcast Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Ben Azadi, thank you so much, Ben, for coming on The Few. Boo, I'm excited to be here on your podcast. We're not too far from each other here. We're both here in Miami, so it's cool to connect here on, uh, on this Yeah, uh, Yeah, I'm feeling like we should have uh, maybe just got an Uber and met somewhere and uh, yeah. done over, uh, a beer or the keto equivalent of beer. <laughs> so, Ben, clearly you're quite prolific in your publishing and your services to health. It, it's very clear to me you are highly purpose-driven and what you do each and every day lines up to that. If there was one thing that happened in your life that defines where you are today, what would that have been? It would be hitting rock bottom. There's a beautiful, something beautiful about hitting rock bottom. And of course, everybody has their different version of rock bottom. I hit rock bottom back in 2008 when I was 24 years old being very unhealthy. You mentioned obesity. That was me. I was not just physically obese. I was mentally obese, mentally broken and bankrupt. That's because of my environment, because of the foods I was eating, the thoughts I was thinking, my toxic environment growing up. I'm born and raised here in Miami. I'm actually one of the rare locals and I went to to school in Miami Beach. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very transient city, so I am a rarity for sure. But yeah, born and raised here in Miami and uh, went to high school in South Beach. I mean, come on. I was skipping school, wow. walking through South Beach, Lincoln Road, jumping off the pier before they closed it off. But the point is that I was very unhealthy growing up. And when I was 24 years old in 2008, I was depressed. I was suicidal. I was on the internet exploring ways to end my life and end my suffering because I did not have purpose. If I had any goals, those goals were to score very high on, on video games because I was really addicted to video games. I was addicted to food and sugar and drugs as well. So no goals at all. And I, I was exploring suicide. And every time I explored suicide, I 
kept thinking about my mother and the devastation that she would have to deal with if her son took his life. I didn't want to do that to my mom. She sacrificed so much for me. She's so unselfish and a hard worker and did so much for me and my sister growing up. So I didn't go through with it primarily because I kept thinking about my mom. So I was rock bottom. I was crying every day. I had back pain, knee pain. I was working at a nine to five job here in Bay Harbor Islands, not too far from where I live now. I had a packing and shipping store that was very uninspiring. I was complaining all the time, verbally or inside of my head, complaining. And I hit rock bottom. And that rock bottom turned out to be a blessing because there's two options when you hit rock bottom. Like you could keep digging and go even farther down in the dirt, or you could use well, it as a- straight under, right? I mean, that's yeah. ultimately where that-, that Yeah, exactly. You, make you could depend. literally go straight under by taking yeah. your life. And I almost did that. Or you could say, all right, if I'm so far down here in rock bottom, what does the opposite direction look like? And I started to think about that. In the opposite direction, there was so much potential and excitement there. But you know, it wasn't until I read books that it helped me understand there was an opposite direction. There was something I could do about it because I was playing the victim card. And I think I know the first step towards a great life is when you start to take ownership and responsibility. And that's something I lacked until I got into the, the books of Dr. Wayne Dyer. And he used to say things that would light me up like, hey, he said, if other people are the cause of your problems, you would have to hire a psychiatrist for the rest of the world in order for you to get better. So true. It landed with me. And he would say things like, hey, when you squeeze an orange, what comes out? Orange juice. Why? Because that's what's inside. When life squeezes you, what comes out? What's inside? Your thoughts, your feelings, your actions. And life had been squeezing me. And what came out was a victim mindset. And I knew that if I needed to make a change, I had to take responsibility. And, and that word is very important and imperative, boo. Most people don't understand that word. To me, that word means it's your ability to respond to life, your responsibility. And my ability to respond to life up until that point was very poor. I was blaming my genetics and blaming my enabling family members and blaming my slow metabolism. But when you take ownership and responsibility, you stop being the victim of your history and you start to become the victor of your destiny. And that's exactly what I did. I lost 80 was pounds it, in nine was it, was months. Was it a moment though? Was it when people talk about this rock bottom moment, a lot of addicts talk about it, the drug addicts, depression. Is rock bottom a day, a moment, or is it an evolution or organic kind of change in direction? For you, was it just that moment of decision-making or did it feel more prolonged? It, rock bottom for me was not a moment. It was, it was years. It was years of feeling rock bottom, depression for years. The decision when you take the ownership does become a moment that you start to change out of that. So that happens instantaneously. The second you take responsibility, the second you shift out of that rock bottom. Your results, of course, don't happen overnight. So what I did in the beginning, I started to create small little tweaks in my day-to-day -day behaviors because I, I read a book called the, not the compound effect, called The Slight Edge. But it was like one of the first books I read by a gentleman named Jeff Olson. And the book taught me about your daily habits compound over time to get you the results that you're experiencing, good or bad. And then of course, Darren Hardy came out with a book many years later about the same thing called the compound effect. So the book helped me understand the reason I had these poor results is because not of what I did yesterday or even the month before, but what I've been doing for years. So if I started to change my habits, I start to shift them a little bit and tweak them, those small tweaks could lead to giant peaks and I could compound that in a positive direction. So I just started to make those small changes and I started to get some momentum. That was the starting point for me. Because that's hard, isn't it? When, is it not true that most people struggle with weight loss because they go on a diet, they either see profound results, like they'll fast for a week and then hit the binge again, or 
not see results fast enough and give up. I mean, there's a real connection between motivation, mindset, willpower, and weight loss, is there not? Big connection. Yeah. I mean, first of all, talking about weight loss, people go about it because they're using weight loss as a gauge of their progress, but it doesn't work that way. The, the body, the metabolism doesn't lose weight in order to get healthy. The metabolism, the body gets healthy in order to lose weight. You see the weight gain is a side effect. It's, it's the symptom. Nobody has a weight problem. I didn't have a weight. I had a weight symptom. Mm -hmm. So where people fail is looking at the symptom and thinking that is their problem, the extra weight. So they'll look at that scale. And if it's not progressing fast enough, or if it plateaus, they perceive their methods as failing because they're looking at the wrong metrics. But when you start to look at other, what I call non-scale victories, then you actually get to see that momentum is occurring and you get to stick with it long-term. It's very insightful because that mental metric can apply to anything, can it not? I mean, it, it's the same with money. People want to be a millionaire, want to save, yet they're quite happy to drink off the top shelf when they're at the bar on a Saturday night, go and have an expensive dinner, or when it's a Black Friday or a Cyber Monday, as we've just had, it's to spend in the now because it's on sale. The metric that you, I think it's called the factoring bias, the way we frame numbers in our mind to formulate a belief. And what you're saying there is the effort and the activity is what we're measuring is rather than the, the numbers on the scale. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that translates to pretty much all areas of success, doesn't it? Including finances. So yeah, that's, a, that's what I'm saying. So if you look today, you're an enormous advocate of keto. You have a vast reservoir of knowledge, history, and experience when it comes to a healthy body, healthy mind. What was that journey like? There's no such thing as an overnight success. So how long and how much knowledge did you consume between rock bottom and where you are today? Yeah, there's no such thing as an overnight success. It's so true. So many people don't see what happens behind closed doors, all the behaviors that we do, the decisions that we make, the studying that takes place. So for me, I uh, started to fall in love with studying health and nutrition and also mindset was a big part. So self-development, Dr. Wayne Dyer, I mentioned him, Tony Robbins, Bob Proctor was a big influence for me as well. One of the things that really helped me was, yes, yeah, studying every day. I actually have studied. I've been, so I've been doing this now for 15 plus years and I've been studying on average every single day for about three hours. I use my car as a time to study. Uh, you know, there's traffic in Miami, so I'm not going to just complain or listen to the radio. I'm going to study. I use walking my dog as study time. And I am very intentional with that. And I, I don't say that to impress anybody. I say it to impress upon your audience that it takes a lot of consistency and dedication. I mean, three hours a day for 15 years. I, I don't know what that is in terms of math, but you start to become really well-versed on that topic or those mm. topics you're studying, right? So that was part of the process. And I'm still a student. I'm still learning. I'm still unlearning. I'm still relearning. One of the things that has really made a big difference in terms of understanding the information, because let's face it, Boo, I think you could agree unless you don't, but information is not the problem these days. We're, we're kind of drowning in information, but starving for truth. It's not really the information that changes our lives. If it did, every librarian would be a multimillionaire because they have access to a lot of books and information, yeah. right? It's the application of that information, the right information with coaching and accountability done long enough for it to really, really matter, right? So that, and one of the things that I, I have learned is that when I'm studying something and I'm learning something, the faster I teach that to somebody else, the more I retain it. It's a selfish thing and an unselfish thing that I do. I want to teach it. So maybe it's an Instagram live or a podcast, or I teach it to my fiance. But when I teach something I'm learning, I start to retain it more. So I think for those who are studying out there and you want to start to retain information faster and apply it better, the faster you could teach it to someone or multiple people, they're going to benefit, but you're going to benefit more by actually mm -hmm. understanding the topic better too. 
it's the application of information that creates knowledge, right? And then the ability to pass it on is wisdom. And I think that's at risk of but being a quote factory here. I think one of the most amazing quotes or something that really landed with me a long, long time ago was Einstein's quote of, if you can't explain something simply, you just don't understand it well enough or paraphrased version. And along that journey, having consumed a lot of information, how much of it was also subject to test and adjust? Well, it didn't actually work. Or, I mean, you're constantly putting the, the knowledge you have into practice, right? And then seeing the results. It's tangible. It's not just theoretical. A lot. I mean, it's still to this day. It's test. I mean, we're so different. Everybody gets different results. We have bio, you know, in terms of health, we have unique genetics, biochemical needs. So yeah, you get the information, you apply it, and then you form your synthesis. You understand that there's always like opposing thoughts. You have your thesis. You think this is going to work based off of what you studied. You have the opposite, the antithesis, maybe opposing idea. And then you apply both and then you form your synthesis, what's worked for you. And that happens all the time. I'm, I'm constantly unlearning and relearning. And that unfortunately or fortunately is unique to the person, uh, especially in the health space. Not every, it's not a cookie cutter approach to this. And it's fun. It keeps things fresh and exciting. It, you remain a student and a teacher at the same time. So yeah, I'm constantly, boo, unlearning and relearning and applying and doing testing. There are tangible things you can do in terms of health by getting like blood work and different tests and looking at different metrics and measurements, et cetera. There's tangible things we can do in our business, looking at KPIs and our investments, et cetera. So there's things we can look at to see what's working and what's not working, which is super cool. It's interesting. You're mentioning blood tests. I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder almost 25 years ago and been living with it. And as a result, your bloods were screened on a monthly basis. Now it's every six months. So from the age of 25, I've had a blood screen. And you can pretty much throw anything you want into those tests, right? As well as an immune a food protein test, testing the immune system. And it's just astonishing how much you learn from, I love it. I mean, I, I try and find all sorts of exotic blood tests to throw in. I'm already, I'm already there getting blood. So let's just test it for some more stuff. You know, and equally being in hospital with an obstructed uh, bowel once and being able to research and talk a surgeon off the cliff from operating on me and having a section bowel. There's, I don't know where that comes from, but there's this, there's this innate curiosity. One of the things I'm interested in though, is was there a moment where you just said, wow, I've changed or you literally got to a point where you were very healthy. You're happy with your level of health. Cause one of the, I guess, myths that I think exists around performance about, about high performance is it's it's very target driven, right? And a big celebration. Yeah. We win the grand final. We win the Super Bowl. And that's what it's all about. How much of your journey was iterative? And was there an aha moment when it was over? Or is it just keep going? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. You know, in terms of the weight loss, looking at photos was super helpful versus the scale. Uh, I could really see a difference and a progress looking at photos I took a month ago versus the present photos. And then two months ago, three months. So those photos were really telling in terms of the, the weight loss progress. I didn't really pay too much attention to the scale. That's one thing. But, you know, overall, you know, we're going to, keep sharing quotes here. I think quotes are powerful, so I'm good with them. <laughs> My favorite definition of success is from Earl Nightingale. He said, success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. And if you adopt that, that mantra for your definition of success, that means every time you set a goal, which is a goal you have fallen in love with, this is a worthy ideal. As long as you're closing the gap between where you are right now and that worthy ideal, that goal, Every step you get closer to it, you're successful, successful, successful. And then, yeah, you hit it, you know, you celebrate it for sure. Uh, I don't know how long you want to stay there, but I, I'm pretty much really fast with my celebrations. And then, okay, what's the next thing? 
I think for myself, what works for me is having a really healthy dissatisfaction with life, like being really grateful and celebrating the wins and the journey and the small steps. And then thinking about what's next, because I know my potential is huge. I know all of our potentials are very, very huge. So it's, a, it's constantly progressing to that worthy ideal and setting new worthy ideals. And as long as I'm closing the gap, I find myself feeling happier and more successful. You know, rockets, when they, when they launch to their goal, their worthy ideal to go to the moon, they're constantly going off course. And then they're course correcting, course correcting, course correcting, and then they achieve their goals. So that's the way I see it. Like I have the worthy ideal, things happen, course correct, you learn, course correct, you learn, eventually you get there. And it's, it's constant in my life. It's never ending for me. And I don't want it to end personally. You just said something that you probably felt was innocuous, but I think is incredibly powerful, which is you close the gap. You close the gap between the desired outcome and where you are today. And I think that's the best thing about goals is it's not the destination. It's the gap between the want and where you are and the gap you can control. You can't necessarily control the target, but you can control the actions you take to close that gap, right? Right on. That's it. The gap. You know, it's funny because I used to be all about the target, the goal, get that goal, yeah. achieve that goal. You know, that's, I've, I've learned that from other entrepreneurs like Grant Cardone, right? I used to teach that many years ago. And, uh, Whenever I hit a goal, it's great. It's cool. But I look back and I'm like, man, I was actually happier and uh, more excited. Like when I was in the gap and I was getting closer and closer. Uh, it's the striving, yeah. Striving for it versus yeah. when I got there, right? So it's interesting when I look back. I agree with you though. I heard on a podcast a few months ago that it's enshrined in the constitution that you're entitled to the right to pursue happiness which is what happiness is. It's the pursuit of it, not necessarily arriving at it because the minute you arrive at happy and you lock that in, you know what's coming next, right? You mm -hmm. can't maintain on top of that summit. So what you said there was, was really spot on. That's some really awesome insights into your personal drivers and into, you know, you. But somewhere along the way, you created a focus in your field and profession. And it seems to me that that centers on keto approach to diet and health but also embracing fasting and intermittent fasting, which is very topical because I just came off a fast that I, my first fast in about two years this morning and just how much better it, it makes you feel. What was it about those two specific approaches to health and eating that I guess proved to yourself that this is the real deal? What, uh, how long did you go for? How long was your fast? This was 48 plus 12, so 60. Nice. And you felt good? Not the first day. I had a lot of headaches and you know, usual sort of headaches and cramping, just, just getting used to it. But by the, the, the second day and a half, yeah, you're just back to normal, right? Now it's just into a pure protein diet, calorie deficit for the next nine days. Here's a question I'd love for you to answer because it's very personal to me. The food and access to food in America is very different from Australia. You can typically travel, go wherever you want. And in Australia, you'll, you'll be able to get a, a very nourishing meal. You'll be able to get a salad anywhere. You'll be able to get tofu, soy, tempeh, all sorts of different derivatives that aren't necessarily meats. But, you know, at an airport, you know you're going to eat very nourishing, healthy, normal food. I find here traveling, it's almost impossible in an airport or anywhere else on the road at the hotel to find nourishment. It's club sandwiches and burgers and cheese and pizzas. And so for me, it was very much a few months of just not being able to find just not being able, not having 10 minutes when you arrive in a city to find a, a sweet green or a salad bar just to pull something up for you. So to me, the fast was very much about, there is just so much crap in my system right now. I put on weight. For me, weight's not, look at my dad bod. I mean, you know, you meant to have a dad bod at 50. 
but for me, it's it's the visceral fats, right? It's what's going on underneath and also the burden that it's placing on your system, what's doing your metabolism. So for me, it's a case of shifting up the metabolism. You know, obviously, I didn't quite get to 72 hours on this one because it's part of a 10-day thing. So, you know, what are the benefits of it, of intermittent fasting? Where does keto fit into it? And what are the dangers of fasting? And, and why is it some people fast and nothing happens? Yeah, well, you know, I love fasting and ketosis because they're both ancient healing strategies, meaning there's nothing new about keto. I, I think that's a surprise to a lot of people. They hear about the keto diet, but technically keto is not a diet. It's a, it's a metabolic process, a metabolic state. And all of our ancestors did ketosis. They, that is a fact. And I know that because when our ancestors went through famine, meaning there was not food available, or the winter when there was only protein and fat, not carbs available, they had to have the ability, they needed the ability to switch to fat burning. And when you switch to fat burning, you produce ketones. So they went through ketosis, simply a metabolic process. Fast forward to this day and age in the United States, there's two studies that are really prevalent to this problem of obesity and metabolic dysfunction. One study from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, back in 2018, revealed that 88% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy. 88%, only 12% are, are what they consider metabolically healthy. Another study showed that it's closer to 93% of American adults are metabolically unhealthy. I would call these individuals who are in that category of being metabolically healthy, unhealthy as uh, being keto deficient. They have lost and forgotten the ability to burn fat and produce ketones. They really need this process. And I am not dogmatic about keto. You mentioned I'm a keto guy. I for sure am. I love it. My company is called Keto Camp. But I'm not dogmatic about it. As a matter of fact, I don't think we should do long-term ketosis. I'm against that. I'm using, I teach how to use it to reset the metabolism, burn fat for a short period of time, and then throw in some carbs. I don't think carbs are the devil like most keto people. I have a lot of keto colleagues that disagree with me, but that's my standpoint on it. Just because I've got you here, I've always had this question yeah, when it comes to yeah. keto, and I've never really been able to find anyone to ask it to. But what about equatorial residents and those that live in hot tropical climates where there is an abundance of carbs? And in terms of proteins, it's probably more of a fish-based type of environment. When you look at ancestral dieting or an ancestral inputs into a, into a metabolism, why is it that when you go to Asia, not so, not so much these days because they have all the same processed foods that we have, but historically, you know, Asians as a culture are, are very lean despite a high-carb diet. Or is that just purely because they just moderate it and take in a certain amount of calories that, that, on all they need each day? There's a lot of variables there, like with the Asian cultures, they move more, so they're getting more steps. There's also a social component. Like if you look at the blue zones, one of the there's a lot of flaws with these blue zones, uh, the centenarians in these different areas across the world. But the commonality of these blue zones is that there is culture and community, and there's gratitude involved, there's laughter, there's being present with your family. So that, a lot of that is also with you know Asian communities. But in terms of your the first question, there was even these warmer climate uh, countries and tribes, although they didn't have to worry about cold winter months because they still could have carbs available to them at times, there were still periods of time where they didn't eat food and they fasted because of out of necessity until they found their next meal, right? So when you fast, you go into ketosis, like you just finished up your 48, 60 hour fast or so, and you were in ketosis because that's what happens when you don't eat. So that's the point. Like either yeah. our ancestors ate only protein and fat from time to time, or they had to fast because there was no food. Either way, they got into ketosis and they used that tool. Now, the average American eats 300 grams of carbs per day. 
and they're eating it every two to three hours and they're never allowing their body to lower insulin and glucose to produce ketones, which is a result of fat burning. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing and the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. It's just crazy. It goes to the whole broader issue with, uh, again, just podcasting someone else the other day, they're talking about how sitting is now one of the biggest health ep- epidemics yeah. we have, that we're just always sitting. But yeah, there's just, there's a deeply primal element to us, isn't there? When we are seduced by these sugars, carbs, and I certainly know once you go off the rails and you have a couple of days on the road and you're constantly eating carbs, you start craving them. And you know that they create the craving for more of them, right? For that sugar hit. I presume then in that scenario, if you do overdo it and you have a big cup, is 12 hours enough to fast? 24, 48? I mean, it's you need to fast for a meaningful period of time to kick ketosis in. Correct. You're not eating keto foods. Yeah. So it's going to depend on the person, right? So the, the question is, how long will it take for us to deplete our sugar reserves? We store sugar in our liver and muscle cells. It's called our glycogen stores. Somebody who's very active could do that maybe in 12 hours, 14 hours of a fast, and they're tapping into fat stores and, and producing ketones. You could verify that by testing blood ketones. I teach my students to do that. Some people that are very metabolically unhealthy, maybe they have insulin resistance and diabetes, it could take them 18 to 24 hours to get into that fat burning mode. So it's different. I would say a minimum fast would be 12 hours. I think that would be you know, you're starting too fast at 12 hours, but if you could bump that up higher and then you could test ketones as a gauge, if you see 0.5 or higher on that keto meter, which is testing blood ketones, then you are in ketosis. You're burning fat instead of sugar. And that is the goal to get there. There's an inordinate amount of fasting diets. I used to just live by the 16-8 diet fasting mm-hmm. where, where you know, I'd, I'd eat between 11 and 7 and that was it. Does the body get used to a certain style of fasting and therefore it becomes a bit more redundant. I mean, I call it normalization theory that whenever we introduce change to our life, we just normalize to that new new normal. And therefore we've got to kind of keep doing and trying different things to make sure that we're firing on all cylinders, right? As you said, the, let's get the high quality orange juice out of the orange. What is it about fasting when it doesn't work is going wrong? Well, you're spot on about the change. Big fan and proponent of mixing things up. Bodybuilders know this. They knew this for years. Every great fitness coach and personal trainer, know they understand the concept of changing things up. There was a really popular at-home workout program. I don't know if you've heard of it called P90X back in the day. Why it was so successful and why CrossFit's so successful. I used to own a CrossFit gym. Why these great personal trainers get such great results with their clients is because of what you just said. They constantly mix things up. Yeah. Working out as the example, one week would be maybe you're using high weight with lower repetition. Next week is the complete opposite, different movements. The body has to adapt to that. When you change, it forces your body to adapt. That creates hormone optimization. That is a good thing. So with fasting, it's no different. And even with the foods you're eating, when you change the foods you're eating, whether it's a keto diet, a vegan diet, a whatever diet, you create more diversity in your gut because your gut has to adapt to that change. Your hormones have to adapt. So with the schedule, I love a 16-8. I love an 18-6, but I also love mixing things up and throwing in a 60-hour fast or throwing in a day where you don't fast or throwing in a 24-hour fast. Mm. The change up is what's really going to help. So to answer the other question about why people don't experience benefits with fasting, they might be doing the same fast over and over and over, number one. Number two, 
they might still be such in a sugar burning state that they need to lower their carbs first and then go into a fast because their body, their brain will panic. Like what happened with you in that first day could have been a couple of things. Number one, you might have lost too many electrolytes, which might make sense why you had the headaches and the cramping. So keeping your electrolytes up during a fast is very, very important. Even if you're having electrolytes, you might want to have more mm. some minerals. But number two, if, and I'm not saying this is you, but if somebody who's burning sugar and they go into a 24 hour fast, cause they start hearing about the benefits of fasting, the brain will panic. The brain will send the body intense signals for sugar and carbs, because when glucose drops in the brain during a fast, it will, and you don't have the ability to burn fat and use ketones. The brain will panic send the body intense signals for sugar and carbs to get the glucose back up in the brain. Mm -hmm. Now you might say, I'm going to power through because I have the best willpower and you could do that. Your body will get that sugar. It'll break down muscle. It'll break down protein. It might even create a, a stress response to get glucose up for the brain. But when you lower your carbs and then start fasting, you're going to get much better results. So that would be probably the biggest thing. If you don't see results with fasting, you want to get fat adapted first. That's the same when it comes to concentration and using your brain, right? Because I, I remember when, we're, when I was a fighter pilot and in the squadron, a mission cycle might be half a day. And when you land and you're back, you, you just probably something that no one really knows or should know. And it's changed a lot since then, but it'd be straight to the fridge for Coke and Mars bars and just <laughs> a craving for junk food, right? And I yeah. still feel it. you would know as well as a keynote speaker or when we run a program with my company Afterburner, it might be a full day program. You are literally on point the whole time. You're the go. At the end of it, all you want to do is go to the bar, drink beer and eat pretzels. So let's just take that brain activity somewhere else. If that brain activity spent scrolling, engaged in digital consumption of information, is that also then contributing to more challenges and more desire around consuming more carbs, more sugar? Like we, we end up in this kind of epic spiral. The more the brain is engaged, the more glucose you burn in the brain. Yes. Whether it's something that's distracting you like social media or speaking on stage, you're going to burn through more sugar. You're going to use more glucose. The brain will use more glucose. So if you're not fat adapted and you don't have the ability to produce ketones, you'll find yourself eating the Mars bars and the pretzels and the beer because you're just so ravenous. What can you consume that gives you that glucose back that isn't sugar or carbs? Like where does the sugar come from? Or is you just condition your brain the wrong way? Well, the goal is to get fat adapted because when you're metabolically flexible and you're, you taught your body to burn fat and sugar and go back and forth, when you're in a fasted state, now the brain doesn't panic because the ketones are in your brain and the brain loves ketones as a fuel source. So it's just stable energy. And for some people they could even just take exogenous ketones without actually having to do the work. It's a little shortcut for some people, but you, you want to be fat adapted. I can tell you when I speak on stage, I'm always fasted because of the mental clarity, the brain performance, but I'm not mm. ravenous. I'm not, I could break my fast the right way and stay clean because I'm fat adapted. So that's the main thing. We want to get fat adapted first, which simply means you're burning fat verified by showing ketones or a biohack would be, you could take exogenous ketones during that fast as well. So what, what does a start, middle and end look like that to become fat adapted? So let's look at your stock standard mid level manager who is in a work from home remote environment doesn't find time for exercise wants to get better trying some things that aren't working how would you start support and end as in continue that what would you do to become fat adapted i could get somebody fat adapted that that example that person anybody most people i shouldn't say anybody most people i could get them fat adapted in, in seven days simple process two steps number one find out how many carbs you're eating 
before you make any changes by just using like a food journal or there's free apps out there, MyFitnessPal, Chronometer, there's free apps you can download. Just input the food you eat without making any changes yet. You're going to come to find that it's probably around 300 grams of carbs per day, which is the average that the average American eats. In order to become fat adapted in ketosis, that needs to be under 50 total grams per day. So you got to go from 300 to 50. Do you do it in one day? Don't recommend that. You do it over the course of seven days with the gradual decrease of carbs each day until by day seven, you're under 50 grams of carbs with those carbs coming from ideally green leafy vegetables, non-starchy vegetables. That's the first what, step. I mean, what does that look like as a picture? Like what would in front of me 50 grams of carbs a day look like? So that app could give you an idea when you input it. So, you know, salads are great, arugula, et cetera, some blueberries, some low glycemic fruits like blueberries, raspberries, et cetera. You start to put the foods in an app and it shows you the total carbs. You want to okay. keep it under 50 grams. That should be the upper limit within those, like by the time you hit day seven. But there's a second tip here that's part of this as well. You also want to complete something, what I call, I outlined this in my book, Keto Flex, called the 2222 rule. So every day, starting day one, as you're gradually decreasing those carbs, you want to hit this 2222 rule. And 2222 rule is two tablespoons of olive oil or avocado oil per day, two tablespoons of grass fed butter or grass fed ghee per day two tablespoons of coconut oil or MCT oil per day. And then the final two is two teaspoons of sea salt per day. Those are all healthy fats. It's going to teach your body to start burning fatty acids instead of sugar because you're dropping your carbs and you want to teach it to burn fat. And those fats will help you do that. And then the sea salt reintroduces some electrolytes and minerals because you're going to lose that when you lower insulin by lowering carbs. So you want to replenish that so you feel good during that transition. Do you, you eat that in a spoon or you just spread that? You just... It's throughout the whole day. Some people like to do it in a spoon, but it's like the oils you use to cook your food in, yeah, okay. your salad dressings, your dips. You could put it in your coffee and tea. I put sometimes, you know, some butter in my coffee, et cetera. So it's throughout the whole day. What's the vegan option? Coconut oil, avocado oil, olive oil, and then just don't do the butter or the ghee. Just yeah, uh, omit okay. the butter and ghee. That just double sense. up on the coconut oil or the uh, olive oil. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. So that covers fasting, covers keto. But also you wrote a book about you know, sleep habits and the importance of sleep. Where did that get on your radar? Because that seems like a little bit of a departure outside of you know diet and exercise. When did sleep become a thing for you to really do a deep dive and become extra curious? I started to see that people could be eating clean. They could be doing CrossFit and exercising, doing intermittent fasting. But if their sleep is poor, they're not going to get the results that we want them to get. Sleep is foundational. It is really, it's like the Swiss army knife of health. It, it touches upon everything when it comes to health. Arguably, sleep is more important than nutrition and exercise combined. And here's my argument. You can go weeks without exercise. It's called the sedentary lifestyle. You could go days without food. You, you just did 60 plus hours, right? The longest fast is actually 382 days. So you can go over a year without food. But try to go a week without sleep. What's going to happen? You're going to turn into oh, a yeah. So uh, I found out that sleep is imperative to get results. You know, amazing things happen during sleep. We have four different sleep cycles. Two of them are very important. The REM sleep cycle, which stands for rapid eye movement. During that sleep cycle, especially for entrepreneurs, this is important, but for every human being, you're processing memory. You're taking short-term memory that happened during that day, processing it for long-term memory. So it's helping with your memory and focus remembering people's names, remembering conversations and facts and figures, et cetera. That's happening during REM. And then we have deep sleep, which is more repair, detoxification, fat burning takes place. So your fat burning hormones are activated during this deep delta sleep, which is stage four sleep. And then the brain actually shrinks in size 
And it does this purposefully during sleep to activate something called the glymphatic system where it shrinks. So these proteins start to come flushed out. And then the body has this kind of like dishwasher fluid called the glymphatic system, cerebral spinal fluid that flushes out these plaques and proteins and toxins and gets rid of it. So it prevents things like Alzheimer's and dementia. These are diseases that are on the rise. And all of this is happening during sleep. So that's why I decided to write a book about it. It's not about getting seven to eight or nine hours of sleep. It might've been a question like how much sleep we should get each night. It's not about the total. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality of that sleep. You want to track how much REM and deep sleep you're getting. It doesn't matter how much total you're getting really, as long as you're getting enough REM and deep. So I use this called the Aura Ring, and this is a sleep tracker, but there's Apple Watches and something called a Whoop Band. It tells you how much REM and deep sleep you're getting. And a, a good target is to get an hour and a half of each, each night. 90 okay. minutes of REM at least, 90 minutes of deep. And if you do that, you're going to be burning fat. You're going to wake up feeling refreshed. You're going to have more energy during the day. And all of the things you're doing with your diet and fasting just upgrade as a result. What about cortisol? And what about stress as a contributor to lack of sleep, to your ability to shed weight, where does stress as a, I guess we understand the mental impact of stress. Obviously it's typically where we look at, but there's some fairly profound physical symptoms that come with chronic or prolonged stress too, isn't there? Oh yeah. Stress is the silent killer. The fastest way to weaken your immune system is to live in stress, to live in fear, to live in stress. Because what happens, uh, I interviewed Dr. Bruce Lipton a few years ago on my Keto Camp podcast. He's a brilliant world-renowned cell biologist. We were talking about this. We were talking about what stress does to wipe out your immune system. And he gave the perfect example of uh, these surgeons that do uh, kidney transplants. And the patient that needs the kidney transplant, during the procedure, as they're preparing this patient to receive this foreign object, this kidney that was donated to them, the surgeon injects the patient with stress hormones. Why? Because it totally wipes out their immune system, their immune response, so the body could accept that foreign object, which is the kidney. Mm. This is exactly what's happening when we're in a stressful state. It's raising cortisol, lowering something called IgA, which protects the immune system. It lowers that, and it leaves you susceptible to illness. But you know, on the weight gain component, there's something called the cortisol belly. You know, that visceral fat you spoke about, Boo, yeah. A lot of that, especially in guys like the love handles, the visceral fat, it's called the cortisol belly. When you have chronically high levels of cortisol, glucose follows cortisol, insulin follows glucose, and then insulin causes weight gain, all from stress. And there's three different areas of stress. There's that mental, emotional part. There's a physical stress, like an accident or an injury. And then there's a chemical stress, like environmental toxins. So all three areas need to be addressed and um, we want to master stress. I always tell my students, don't just manage stress, master it, because when you do, you're going to notice some significant benefits. I have a, an observation, I guess, which is a lot of people use stress as a blanket and a lot of high performers, a lot of executives who use the fact that they're on all the time, that they have no spaces in their diary, that every alert's an urgent alert, that that is it's almost becomes a belief system that if I am not in that state, I am not being effective. I'm not working, working hard enough. What can you tell us about some of the common beliefs that you've seen that maybe people aren't aware of and how to break some of those beliefs? Again, my philosophy is performance is based on what we believe, not what we do. And as a result, how do we, not so much your own journey, I guess, but in, in maybe some of the more unique journeys you've seen where you've just dealt with people who are like, just have these flawed belief systems, how you've managed to turn that around? It's a great question. All right, here's what I do. And you're right, I see that too with a lot of entrepreneurs that I work with. Now that I just explained how bad stress is, let me explain 
a different viewpoint, and then I'll give you an actual way to measure if you're handling the stress well or not. Stress is also very important for health and longevity. It really is because go back to the adaptation thing. When we change things up, it creates a stress and uh, stress is vital to your health and longevity as long as you are adapting well to that stress. This is a principle of health called hormesis. A lot of people have not heard of hormesis, but I encourage everybody to study a little bit about this hormetic effect. And to give you a perfect example of how this works is to use exercises as an example, and then I'll tie it back to your question. If you are a couch potato, 10 years, no exercise, sedentary lifestyle, sitting every day, and then you hear about CrossFit or a marathon or some sort of stressful exercise that you go and you go all in with, you do the full workout or the full marathon, the full run, that was too much stress for you to adapt to. You're going to be injured. You're going to be hurt. It'll take you days, maybe a week to recover because you did too much. Your hormetic ceiling, you have this zone to stay in, this magic zone, kind of like the Goldilocks zone. Not too much, not too little, but a good sweet spot of stress is where we want to be. So if you do too much too soon, you lose that. But if you are already exercising and you're doing different workouts, strength training, high intensity, and you do CrossFit, you'll probably adapt to that well, right? Because you you're in that zone, that Goldilocks zone. So going back to your question, the entrepreneurs that are using stress as like a excuse or whatever it is, a blanket you said, that might be very well true for them. They might be adapting really well to that stress and it actually, it's making them stronger and better and it's all good. But here's how you know, there's a metric that we track and I track this with all of my entrepreneurial clients and CEO and guys that I, and gals that I work with. There's a metric that measures how well you are at adapting to that stress. Cause you could be lying to yourself, but the numbers are not gonna lie to you. And this metric is called heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is looking at your nervous system. And your nervous system is the gauge on whether or not you are adapting to the stress because your nervous system has a branch called the sympathetic state, which is fight or flight, cortisol, yep. adrenaline, go, go, go. Very important in spurts. Then we have another branch, which is the kind of the opposite called the parasympathetic, which is rest, digest, relax. HRV, if that is low, you are in a stress state, you're not adapting well. If you see your H heart rate variability dropping, it's showing your nervous system is not adapting to the stressors of your life, whether it's exercise or being busy, and you're actually depleting your health, shortening your lifespan, et cetera. But if you see your HRV actually increasing, then maybe it's working for you. So if you're not tracking your HRV, you're just kind of guessing. This aura ring also tracks HRV. Apple Watch tracks it. There's different ways to track it. Everybody has a different HRV average. So you're not going to compare yours to anybody else. You're going to find your average after maybe measuring for seven days. Here's your average. And then you'll see if you're building it up, which is good, or building it down, which is not good. So that is the metric that I use. And it's incredible, isn't it? The technology we have available to us to be able to measure it. I was, I, uh, was recently diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, which mm. I personally believe is a result of COVID. And having an inflammatory immune disorder, I guess, was forced into... Apple world. I mean, I, I don't like to admit it having previously been <laughs> an Android uh, user, but uh, yeah, I was truly astonished at the depth of, and the halo ring, all of, just how incredibly accurate and the depth of analytics that you can get. I wrote a blog about this once about watch watching where it's like, yeah. you, just, you just get lost in the metrics, right? And you, uh, we call it performance flying as fighter pilots. You're, you're flying the needles instead of flying the airplane. We'll talk about that in a sec, but in terms of, optimum health for each individual. And given that every individual is different, what are some of the tools that we can use and how can we get a feel for things like our metabolism? I mean, metabolism is something that we all know of, but 
there's some people that live and breathe metabolism. Everything is, you know, you breathe into a machine and it gives you metabolism. You know, once you understand your metabolic model, everything becomes easy. But how on earth do you do it? How do you genuinely understand what your metabolism is? There's some free metrics you could pay attention to. I was, uh, you know, it's like a quiz that I could, you know, ask your audience right now, see if you passed the quiz or not. I'll ask some questions and your audience could, you know, based off of their answers, these are free metrics. And then I'll give some, you know, lab metrics you could test it as well, but free metrics. Number one, do you have any skin tags or brown patches around your armpit area or around your neck? What's the significance of that? Well, skin tags and brown patches are a result of insulin resistance. Insulin resistance leads to type 2 diabetes and type 2 diabetes leads to heart disease, cancer, kidney failures, et cetera. And this could be early signs of that. So skin tags and brown patches, do you have that? Yes or no. Second thing is, do you feel tired after eating a meal? If you feel wiped out after eating a meal, chances are your metabolism is not functioning that well. And there's- Doesn't changes. everyone get that? Isn't it? I thought that's what the food coma was. I mean, we, <laughs> we everyone talks about having a big lunch and being on a well, food coma. Well, you know, the food coma thing is real uh, and it's going to happen when you like feast like on a Thanksgiving meal. Yeah. I'm talking about just a regular meal, even like, a, you know, your salad or whatever it is. Like that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to feel mm. a food coma after a regular meal. You won't feel as good as when you're fasted. That is true, but you shouldn't feel like a food coma. So that's a sign of uh, metabolic inflexibility. Number three, if you happen to skip a meal for whatever reason, intentional or not, do you feel better or do you feel worse? If you feel better, good sign. And if you actually get hangry, irritable, like you're not fun to be around, you can't focus, that's a sign of metabolic inflexibility as well. So those are a few questions. Anything on that before I move on to lab testing? Well, one thing I always thought was interesting as well as body temperature. Sometimes you feel like people with high metabolism, my wife, for example, it always runs super hot, like almost like too unbearably and then is always cold as a result, like no matter what, it, we have to live in Miami. That's why we live here because anywhere else she feels like she's freezing all the time. Is that a myth or is there also some truth to the... There's a myth to um, wanting a fast metabolism. In nature, animals that have a fast metabolism live a shorter life because you're actually shortening your lifespan, having to metabolize things faster. We don't want a fast metabolism. We want an efficient one. But when it comes to the hot versus the cold, Usually the thyroid is a big player there. So I would look at thyroid to see what's going on with the thyroid, do a full thyroid panel, get antibodies done, because that's usually a thyroid issue, especially the cold part, not adapting to different temperature changes and feeling cold, usually a thyroid thing. Yeah, right. Interesting. All right. What about the science? Yeah. So, you know, lab testing, a couple of things, uh, A1C, uh, which is looking at, it's a blood test, pretty standard. You might be able to get it through insurance. Uh, it's a great test looking at the three-month average of your blood sugar levels. The higher your blood sugar levels are, the faster you're going to age. That's also a metric for prediabetes and diabetes. We want that at 5.2 or below. If you're at 5.7 to 6.4 on that A1C, you're considered pre-diabetic. If you're at 6.5% or higher, you're considered full-on diabetic. And there's a study that showed if that A1C is 7.5% or higher, every year it's at that level, you lose 100 days off of your lifespan. And I did wow. the math. If it's at that level for 15 years, you're losing four years off your lifespan. So get an A1C done. That's important. And then I'll just add one more, a second one, which is fasting insulin. Arguably, this could be even more important than the A1C because sometimes the blood sugar levels don't change, but the, A1, the uh, insulin could be super high. Insulin is the hormone. It's an energy sensing hormone. It causes fat storage. And that can be high for years before your blood sugars change. 
So you want your fasting insulin to be in the single digits. If it's higher than that, you have insulin resistance and that's going to lead to the other problems that I mentioned. What about for folks that, and I presume that like any case, you've got your extreme versions, but for the, for many of us, we just are bouncing somewhere in the middle. And whilst we might not have the chronic symptoms of, of being a diabetic, we have the chronic malaise or just the chronic, I call it the beigeness of life, where it's just, everything is beige. It's not hyper stressful. It's not, it's just the above average stress always. It's overeating a little bit always. It's the people who are well-intentioned but life just gets them, right? In terms of mind, body, spirit, what would you say is the best way? And we've touched on this in various forms, but to wrap it up and a habit that you could have or a mindset you could have at a younger age, I was very physical. as I was running, rowing, always busy, right? What sets you up for success in life? Do you believe? And it has to be one thing, you know, as they say, Einstein, complex to simple, simple, compelling that would be an accelerator to this journey. I'll keep it simple. Focus on the fundamentals, sleep, movement, and mindset, you know, master that. Everything will upgrade. Everything you do will upgrade as a result of focusing on the fundamentals. The fundamentals are called the fundamentals because you can't skip them. It's the foundation of the house. If you're building a house, I don't care how beautiful the roof looks or the kitchen or the beautiful walls and the paint, which are like the supplements and the biohacks and the diets and the fasting, all that's great. But if the foundation is weak, it'll fall apart wall by wall. So focus on the foundation of your health, sleep, movement, and mindset, and then go from there. I love it. And by foundation, you what you're not saying is be super rigid, super routined, introduce purposeful change and purposeful adaptation to make sure that we don't really get into that state where we normalize and normalize into a version of us that is now best. Ben Azadi, hey, thanks so much for being generous with you. Uh, Benazadi.com. Uh, is yeah. the website, the Benazadi for social handles or keto camp, both with a K.com. If you're interested in exploring more and, and no doubt, Ben, you would have clients, you would have the people, the entrepreneurs around you that would be there for life based on your own curiosity to keep us healthy and, and live our best life. So thank you so much for sharing those incredible insights with my audience to help them become one of the few. Thank you for having me. I love the question. I love the conversation. Next time we'll do it in person, boo. Let's do that. Look forward to, to crossing paths again and hopefully uh, having you on the show again to answer the questions that we didn't get to ask today. Let's do it. Sounds good. Thanks again. Thanks, man. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few. And I'd like to thank our partners without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, Real Life Fighter Pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.